Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Space for Life. We're going to have a phenomenal conversation today with a, a new friend for me, Stacy Hawkins Adams. And we have just recently kind of gotten to know each other, although I've heard about you for years. There's so many places our paths have crossed, but we haven't crossed right. until just recently. Exactly. So I'm so excited to have Stacy with us today for this episode. And I was a little bit at odds with how to do this introduction because we have a limit for how long these, <laughs> this, these podcasts can be. And she's done so many different things. The whole podcast could be her introduction. <laughs> so, but I thought I would at least start with the way she kind of introduces herself on her website, which I love, is it's just simply writer and encourager. And I want to come back to that because that's not actually the way most people describe themselves, you know, on a website. It's, you know, Emmy Award winning. It's all the different things, which you have plenty of those things you could have said, but you just kept it simple, writer and encourager. But I'm going to add a little color to it. Okay. So Stacy has written 12 books, which having written one absolutely blows me away. Nine are women's fiction novels, a faith-based devotional book, a compilation of original inspirational quotes, which I love inspirational quotes, and most recently, a single poem chat book titled The Pivot, which I have right here. And I was not familiar with the term chat book. So it's like for chapter. Book. Right. Or that... It means like a single book, like a book of poetry. It could be one poem or it could be multiple poems. But I had to look it up as well because I was trying to figure out how do I let readers know it's literally one poem in book form. So that's the term chat book. Oh, well, that's great. That was a new one on me. So hopefully we'll get a chance to talk more about sure. the pivot. It's just mind boggling to me that you are able and gifted enough to write both nonfiction and even poetry. <laughs> that kind of blows me away. But it doesn't really stop there because you're a speaker. You speak in quite a few different venues. You have a, a whole career as a journalist, which I hope we'll hear uh, some more about. Uh, you taught it collegiate actually was the director of communications. Director of yes, communications, communications just there. after my kids all yes, graduated yes. there. So they, <laughs> they missed you during that. Uh, Stacy's a recent recipient of the Motivational Author of the Year Award from the National Black Book Festival, uh, honored with the 2021 Central Virginia Communications and Leadership Award from Toastmasters. You're a newspaper reporter. You coach authors uh, might be knocking on your door for that. <laughs> I'm here for uh, you. <laughs> YWCA Richmond Outstanding Woman of the Year. You run workshops. I mean, you are a busy lady. I know. I do sleep and I do prioritize rest, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know. And that's actually, that's one of the things I'm going to be excited about talking about because I think the whole concept of space for life is that it's possible to have space in the midst of great purpose, 
and joy mm -hmm. and even busyness. Yeah. And you're going to be a perfect person to talk about how do we get there. Do my best. So anyway, I'm very excited to have you here for, for this episode. We connected just recently at a mutual friend's grand opening of the first cancer retreat center, yes, Kristen yes. Harris. And Kristen was on the podcast probably just about a month or two ago. Yeah, I love her. She's wonderful. She's so special. And so I was so glad to finally run into you. And you're on the board. Of I am on the board and honored to just, you know, I've seen her through this journey to having worked at Collegiate. She was a teacher there when right. I was director of communication. So we bonded there. My children are Collegiate alums, go Cougars. And she was my daughter's advisor. So I've seen her over the years, the strength she's had through that cancer battle of her own. She is special and she loves you. Oh, I love her likewise. <laughs> so, so it was so great to connect there. And immediately when we began talking, I thought, oh, I need to have her on, on the podcast. So I'm really grateful for you uh, to be with us today. And uh, I thought it would just be great to kind of begin because I don't really know much of your life story. So uh, I'd love to just get to know you more and okay. tell us what you want to tell us. All right. Well, let's see. Where do I start? Because it's a long life story at this age, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> Not I'll... nearly as long as mine. <laughs> well, we are, look, next chapters. We're in the next chapters. I'll start with, I guess, just saying I'm an Arkansas native. I grew up in Arkansas. I've lived in Richmond longer for 30 years. Uh, it was 30 years this past August. I remember moving here as a young wet behind the ears reporter thinking, oh, I'd be here a couple of years, but wound up staying. I was at the Richmond Times-Dispatch for many years. Uh, they let me change beats. I called it, we called the assignments we had reporter beats. So I started covering courts and crime, and then I switched to covering welfare reform and social issues. And then I became an inspirational columnist for my last six years there. And then even after I decided to pivot and retire in 2006, they invited me back to write a parenting column as a freelancer for another 10 years when I moved on to some of the marketing and communications wow. work. So I've had a long standing, I guess, life and career in terms of writing and things of that nature, communications in the Richmond area. So it, it, Richmond is home for me now. But in terms of my origins, I grew up in a town called Pine Bluff, Arkansas, about 60,000 people, the very youngest of five children. And I, I, I say I'm one of those blessed people who knew it as a child what my purpose was. It sounds very odd. Really? <laughs> but at five years old, when I learned how to read, I also started writing poetry. And my eldest sister was in graduate school at that time. And so that was back in the days of typewriters, if you all remember that. And she would take my poems and I would write short stories and she'd type them up and then she'd staple it together, you know, the regular typing paper. She'd staple it together and give it back to me and say, here's your book. And like everyone in my family, they'd have me write poems for birthdays and my teachers were celebrated. And my fourth grade teacher let me write the class play. And when I was in fifth grade, I wrote a poem about police officers, just a corny poem that I, I honestly still remember to this day, but I'm not going to recite it and embarrass myself. <laughs> but I wrote this poem for like a class assignment. And unbeknownst to me, my fifth grade homeroom teacher, Mrs. Alma Jackson, she um, sent it to the local police department. And a few weeks later, uh, my, my brother's coming by the house. Again, they're all much older. They were adults. So he came by my parents' home and checked, had checked the mail on the way in. It was like, why is this 11-year-old getting a, a letter from the police department? So I'm like, we're all like, what happened? And so we opened it, and there was the police chief, Bobby Norman. And he was saying that he had received this poem from my teacher, and it really 
was so meaningful for them to know that they mattered and they had framed it and hung it on the wall in the police station and I could come by for a tour and a visit. And I'll tell you more so than the letter or the offer for the tour, it was a light bulb moment because everyone in my family and my community and my church, they celebrated me as a writer. Like if you met any of my childhood friends like today, they'd be like, oh, Stacy, oh yeah, the writer. Like they knew that about me. But here was someone who didn't know me and it had enough impact that he wrote me a letter and invited me down and framed the poem. So that's when I felt like, wow, I can do something with this. So I tried to write my first novel. I knew I wanted to be a writer. The first novel it took years, but that kind of set me on a journey. So you didn't write that at 12? I did that at 11. Yeah. No, the, yeah. the first novel. No, you know, I did not wait, you know, you I, waited just, a I decided bit. not yeah. to be a genius. Okay. <laughs> but that I'll tell you amazing. to zigzag a little bit. The interesting story there was I, I was so dedicated to my writing that I did try to write a book and I had like three or four chapters handwritten in red ink of this novel called Kima Kurtzen. I, that, she was the main character. I don't even remember her story, but I sent it off to Harper and Row Junior Publishers. And I don't know how long it took because, you know, you don't know time as a kid, but months later, I'll say I got this little blue rejection card that was basically like, thank you. We'll be in contact if we're interested. It was basically a rejection card. Fast forward 25 years later, literally 25 years later, Harper Collins, another division of Harper Collins, published my first nonfiction book, Who Speaks to Your Heart, tuning in to hear God's whispers. So I just think about like, I remember that happening, like I, this was in my heart and I wrote to that particular publisher. And HarperCollins later published one of my books. They actually published, ended up publishing four of my, my books, one nonfiction and three novels. So amazing. That is an amazing story. I had no idea. And that's so rare to yeah. from, you know, really a young child to have that level of clarity and kind of unending passion for something. I think so. And I didn't realize what a gift it was until I became an adult. And you know, your friends are struggling to figure it out and what to major in, like, I was laser focused. I will say in middle school, as I started researching careers, I started reading about the starving artist and the starving author. And I was like, not for me, but I do want to write. And that's when I discovered journalism. And so I worked in my high school newspaper. I was the editor of my college newspaper for the last two years, my junior and my senior year. I interned at newspapers around the country, including USA Today, and landed at a newspaper, uh, the sister paper of USA Today, Florida Today was my first job out of college. So I was there for about a year before I came to Richmond. So what I found with the journalism was similar with the story I'm telling you about this police chief, because I figured out and, and saw with journalism that I could help people understand or gain, gain clarity about an issue that maybe they somewhat understood or they didn't understand fully and help them see it in a new way that either would help them or help them understand someone else. So even when I covered mm -hmm. murder trials, I would write about the verdict. I'd say, you know, this person was found guilty, but I was always listening to what led that person to become the murderer, what led that person, what harm was caused to this victim by that. And so I would always want to tell those stories as well to kind of humanize, you know, this is not just something that happened. There are people behind this and they matter too. So that's always been a passion. Well, and it does seem to be a thread with everything that you do that it kind of comes back to story. So that, that you even kind of turned the journalism, which doesn't often, you don't think of that often as being primarily about story. It's more about right. facts, but that you turn that's probably why you were so good at it. Because that's what people would really like to read. 
Yeah, it definitely resonated with the readers. And so even when I wrote the inspirations column, as I mentioned, it was a faith-based column, which was an anomaly for a daily newspaper. But the Times Dispatch trusted me was sort of in that time, the touch by an angel era. So, you know, we started out, they came to me, my editor, managing editor at the time, this was back in, I guess, 2000. And she's like, you know, what would you like to do next? And I was like, I think I want to write this column and it'd be like a a faith-based inspirations column, but we won't be preachy because that's not my style. And so she was like, we'll give it a try. Let's you write, you write three columns and let's see what happens. And the Richmond community just, it was like, just fell in love with, like they were getting letters and calls. And so it lasted for six years until I left the paper. And so even with that, sometimes I would tell my own personal journey of faith, but never in a preachy way. But a lot of times I would talk about other people's journeys and tell the story of, you know, this person started here and here's how their faith or their persistence or whatever they moved through landed them here. And so that's always been important for me to help people see each other and just humanize each other. But that's that I would imagine that column could only work if you were able to bridge a lot of differences, particularly as people talk about faith. Mm -hmm. People, you know, are often, unfortunately, first oriented to look at the differences. Yes. And to be able to write in Richmond, which is you know, a conservative community, but also has a, a pretty strong faith base to be able to write across the different communities is, is quite a gift, quite a challenge. Thank you. Thank you. It was a gift to me to do it. Like it, that just, that fed my soul. And, you know, again, your viewers will probably remember 9-11. We're of that age. So September 11th, 2001, that was my first day back at work after a 12-week maternity leave with my son. And I sat at my desk, I got there super early, 8 a.m. And someone called me to welcome me back to work. And we're on the phone together when the second plane hits the tower. And I'm looking at the TV because we had a bank of TVs in the newsroom. And I was like, oh my gosh, I gotta go because I gotta work. Well, coincidence, I don't believe in coincidence. I always (laughs) think it's divine. But coincidentally, I already had an interview scheduled with the imam of a Muslim center off of Huguenot Road. I was going to go interview him for my column. It was just going to be something I was going to do to kind of get restarted after maternity leave. So I call him up and he was like, because he knew me, he said, because I know you, I trust you. I read your columns. I'm going to let you come, but we're not letting anybody else in here because it was also a daycare center. So I get there and it's like haywire, like the phones are ringing off the hook. They've got police presence because people are calling in threatening. Sure. Because of course, you know, the towers and the Muslims and all of that. And so I was just like, what is your message? And his message is, we are Americans too. We are heartbroken too. We didn't do this. Like, don't harm us. And I came away from that conversation. I remember driving back to the newsroom. I was going to add that piece now to a larger story about 9-11. But out of that came an idea for me to spend that next year, once a month, profiling a person of different faiths. So every month for the rest of that year, I profiled a Sikh, a Quaker, of course, a Buddhist, if you can think of it, 11 other faiths, Right. I did that. And at the end of that year, I wrapped it up to say, here's what I learned. And I hope my readers learned on this journey is that they have different tenets and they have different practices. But the one true thing that rang through all the different faiths and denominations was love. Like that was the central core mandate mm-hmm. from all of those differences. So if we lean into someone might be different from us, we may not quite understand but we're all mandated to lead with love and lean into love. And so that's what I took away from that. And I hope that's what the readers took away as well. Wow. That's incredible. Do you, I'm, I'm 
probably asking questions easy. Do you get a lot of joy from your writing? Can't you tell? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do because yeah. I, I, you know, I was actually in a podcast interview yesterday, and I was like, I really grew up shy, and I, I can still be a little shy. And then I start talking about the writing and the passion and the stories, and the passion for the writing and the stories, and I kind of, it transforms me. So yeah, it's just sort yeah. of my that's like just been the joy of of my life probably forever. But it's really hard work. It is hard work and sometimes it's scary work, like especially yes. like that first book I wrote for Zondervan, Who Speaks to Your Heart, Tuning In to Hear God's Whispers. It's out of print now, but you can probably find copies online. But originally they approached me with writing a 30-day devotional. And I was like, I got gotcha. you. I can do that. And then after the contract was signed, the editor calls and she's like, Ashley, we want you to write a story for busy women about how to hear from God. I was like in my mid thirties and I'm like, okay, who made me the expert on this? And how am I going to get this done? And the only thing I could come up with was, well, I got to share my own journey of faith. I got to tell my own stories. I have to be vulnerable and open up. And as a journalist, you're always trained to write about the other people. Like you never put yourself front and center. And I did it a little bit as a columnist, but it was really about other people. But to tell this, to write this book, I had to have the courage to share Stacy's vulnerabilities and Stacy's fears and Stacy's heartaches. And that was extremely hard, even though the storytelling was involved. And the way I got through that was I just was picturing, this is a book coming out with this title. Someone's going to go in the store, whatever woman picks this book up, she really wants to know how to hear from God. She really wants to know how to tune in and she can't read fluff. And that's the only way I got it done because I was like, I can't let the reader down. I have to like really give that person something that'll hopefully be helpful. Well, you really do put your heart into book. I mean, I've saying for both of us because right. that was, you know, certainly for me writing, and yeah. I have not viewed myself as a writer, reluctant writer. Mm -hmm. I love to speak and I love to teach, but putting it in written form was a, a whole new challenge. But it, it there was a a, a compelling force mm -hmm. to just say this is important, you know. Perhaps some people need to hear this. Yeah, and it can help them. So it's a, it, there is a calling to it. It is. I always tell the students that I write and that I coach rather in writing. There's someone somewhere in the world who needs what only you can write. Mm -hmm. So there is, if, even if it's one reader. Hopefully, it's more. We typically it's more. But even if it's just for that one person, there's somebody that needs what only you can write, what only you can deliver. So. That's part of the calling. Right. And that's enough. Right. I mean, right. it doesn't always yeah. feel enough, but it is. Enough right. Exactly. When it comes down to it. Yeah. So you, you wrote the inspirational column mm -hmm. for the Times Dispatch for six years? Yes. That was like my last six years on staff. So while I was doing that, I was still, as of course, I told you about being a reporter. I was still a Metro Desk reporter covering social issues while I wrote that column. So what part about the pivot from that? to the next season? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. So I left there full time in 2006. So my mom died six months before I left. And that was huge for me. I had just finished writing my second book. It wasn't published yet. I turned it into the publisher. They loved it. And then they approached me about with a three book contract. They were like, we want you to write another book in this series. And then there's a three book contract. So I was really at this crossroads of, I love what I'm doing. I'm called to write this column. I had a young family. My children were three and six at the time. So I had already, I would get up in the mornings and write from four to 6 a.m. to get the first book done. And then the second book I had just turned in. And here's this opportunity for a three book contract. 
And I'm like, work-life balance is so important. And I always knew I didn't want to like be this superstar writer, author, and I didn't know my children or they didn't know me or they couldn't find right. me. I needed to be very present for them. And so it was a choice. It was like, okay, Lord, I'm going to take this leap of faith. I'm going to follow this book path and I'll do some freelance writing and speaking and other things. And I remember this might sound eerie to your readers, but or your list, your viewers rather, um, and your listeners, but it, it really happened. So I, I remember as I was struggling with this one morning, I sat in my, at my desk at the newspaper and it wasn't an audible sound, but I remember sitting there and this feeling came over me. If you continue to be here and sit in this space, the person who's supposed to come here next can't come. Like they can't be in their purpose. So oh, it was wow. almost just, it was a knowing. And it still took me about three or four months after that to make the full decision to retire per se. But it just came, this knowing just came over me like, it is about you, but it's also about other people walking in their purpose too. So I needed to move on to this next phase. So then someone else could sit in that seat and be in that reporter role. And as I said, the Times Dispatch ended up inviting me back a year later to write a parenting column. And I did that for as a freelancer for the next 10 right. years. No, uh, interview I did just recently with you know, a tremendous lady, Jim Fadling, mm-hmm. uh, and she described in her life a very similar experience with similar words. It was like, wow. no, it wasn't audible, but I absolutely knew, yes. you know, it was from God. And the more, you know, I've done this podcast, the more uh, I come across those experiences. And I've had things like that. And you were reluctant to say it because right. it feels very presumptuous to say, you know, God spoke to me right. and it doesn't even feel right to use those words, but yet that is the experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a clear, it was a clear message that seemed to come from outside. It wasn't something exactly. that we would naturally think ourselves. Right. Exactly. You're just sitting there and you're like, where did that come from? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. But it probably didn't change that. That felt very risky. Oh no, it felt very risky. And I was married at the time. So I had long conversations with my my spouse at the time and I'm a planner and I'm, you know, I'm a little strategic type A. So I'm like plotting out how I'm going to make this happen. And what am I going to do to make sure that everything shored up with the children and all of that? So I did some planning, but at some point I just was like, okay, I am going to take this leap and here's how it's going to be. And, and I'll tell you, it, it worked out well because then the floodgates opened of now I was able to volunteer on local boards. And now I had a passion for children's advocacy because I, I say, I always say to adults and I've always said, because of my experience, if you see a seven or eight or nine or 10 year old with a passion for something, pay attention. That might be their purpose because my purpose came to me so young. So like we should pay attention to that. So I've always been involved with child advocacy organizations and women's empowerment organizations. But as a journalist, when you're covering those issues, you can't be a part of that. So me retiring allowed me to volunteer more in the community. I was offered more speaking engagements. I wrote those books on that contract. I had future book contracts. Now I did end up pivoting again and I got back into marketing and communications work as well. But, you know, that was the season for the full-time pivot. And I did it full-time for about three or four years. Well, I think you'd still probably have three or four pivots left in you. (laughs) I think so too. (laughs) As as I'm thinking from a few years, you know, quite a few years beyond you, and I'm I'm still doing a lot of pivoting. Right, right. But but that's the fun stuff of life. Exactly, right, right. See where the adventure of life leads you. Yeah. Gosh, that's amazing. So now... It seems like you're 
running in a hundred different <laughs> directions. I mean, that's the way it looks from the outside, but there's something else going on because most everybody that I know that I would describe that way kind of carry that in their demeanor. Mm -hmm. They're running hard and they're, you get the sense that they're out of breath. Mm. Uh, but I don't get that sense from you either in person or in the words that you write. Right, right. Just different. Right. You know, it's funny. I was at a, a speaker training a couple of weeks ago and uh, there was like a brand person there and all this and that. And so I always think of myself as the author. And so for me, I'm always leading with the author and being an encourager and all these other opportunities come. And I'm like, okay, well, that kind of aligns with what I'm doing. And so this person, she said, you like, you just put yourself in this author box. Do you not realize that this is inspiration? Like you're inspiring. And then you got the fiction and the nonfiction and the da 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 da. She like named all these things that you're referring to. And I kind of sat there. I was like, I just want to be the author. And everybody in the room laughed because I'm like, I'm just a writer. And I, my daughter's 25 now. And so I was telling her about this conversation later that night. She's like, mom, everybody sees but you that it is all these other things. And yes, a writer is part of it. So it's a, like a little bit of an identity shift for me to own that, that encourager part is somewhat superseding just the author part of it. And I think I'm okay. So I think that's what you're seeing. Like I've led yes. with the foundation being the author piece and that's opened the door for all these other things that I think are aligned with inspiring, encouraging. I always say using words to enlighten, uplift and inspire. So all these other things feed that and help me do that. And so I've kind of seen myself as the writer doing those things and other people are saying, no, you're like the encourager and all these other things fall under that. So I'm owning that. Yeah, I would ag agree for what it's worth because, you know, for you to write, for instance, again, I'm kind of imagining just a, a little bit of our conversations for you to write something that wasn't inspirational, that didn't bring meaning and something worthwhile. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see that as satisfying you. It's like right. the bigger thing is that you want to inspire right. people right. and encourage people and make a difference. And the writing is the gift platform that allows that to happen. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so like, you know, I know we were going to talk a little bit about mission. I did discover, and I guess through a lot of prayer and journaling, probably about five years ago, I was having this conversation with God and encourager. That's why that word's on my website. And he did say, you're an encourager and the vehicle is the writing. But even with that, you see, I was kind of clinging to the writing part of it. But yeah, so I, that was revealed to me through that deep listening, like I said, in the journaling and the prayer time, that is my purpose, like to be an encourager. And he gave me the gift of writing yes, to execute yes. it. So yeah, I'm trying to think, has there been a time when I, where I have not written anything encouraging and I really can't think that I have, like I said, even in covering like a murder trial, I might like tell you the facts or if I'm covering a hurricane or something of that nature. But out of that, I'm still communicating with that person or, you know, figuring out even behind the scenes what that story is. And so anybody who's read my fiction, they see those same things that I wrote about as a, a journalist spill over to the fiction. So I've written about murder trials. I've written about women fighting their way through domestic violence, dealing with infertility, struggling with self-esteem. One friend is a, a godly person. Her best friend's an atheist. She doesn't force her, but in the next book, this friend on her own way, in her own way, finds God. 
So all those things that I might have written about as a journalist, I could take from that, you know, those experiences or that expertise, and I pull that into my fiction as well. Which probably gives your fiction a tremendous authenticity because it's, you know, I, I think of a lot of inspirational fiction as having a pretty high fluff factor right. in it. But having been a journalist and dealt with the things that you've dealt with and have I have to admit, I have not read. Of course, the, no, you have not fiction. read my women's fiction. I haven't read I'm all so of offended. your women's fiction, <laughs> but I imagine yeah. that's probably what gives it such kind of accessibility and realism. Yeah, I hope so. And, and you know, and I bring the journalistic skill set to the fiction. So I've set a book. I set my book "Lead Me Home." It's set in Milwaukee. I've never been to Milwaukee, but I was on the websites. I like. I have this person living in a suburb. Like, okay, tell me the suburb where the middle-class African-Americans predominantly live. Okay, Brown Deer. She's going to live in Brown Deer. I need to get her to go downtown to the convention center. What interstate do you take from Brown Deer to get to the convention center? What's the cute little cafe near there? I would look up the cafe. I'm going on the menu. So my character's eating what's on the actual menu from that real cafe. So I do a lot of research of a space or time or issue or whatever to make it real to the characters. Like I've written my first three novels are based in Richmond and I've had book clubs come and walk along Monument Avenue or drive along Monument Avenue or uh, go hang out in Shackle Bottom because I wrote about the tobacco company and they had a club lunch in there. So it's fun to do that part of it. But then the part that I'm fictionalizing, I think you're right. I think there's something I'm never writing about a real person, but I guess the essence of what I've taken from those experiences, I try to remember the emotion. I try to remember you know, what it might be like to go through that. And I will tell you, I've heard it's, it's been very humbling. My very first novel, about a year or so after it was written, I got an email in the middle of the night from a woman in Atlanta who said, you know, she was going through a difficult breakup. Her mother had sent her this book. She had planned to go home from work. That day. Well, she had planned to go home from work to kill herself that day because this young man she thought she was going to marry was marrying someone else. And her mother had mailed her a copy of my first novel, Speak to My Heart. She sat down and started reading it and she was emailing me like at 1 a.m. in the morning to say, I just finished it. I'm not going to harm myself. I'm going to return back to my faith, like literally. And so like, that's how I know the stories are bigger than me. I've had someone to read my second novel about domestic violence. I had no idea that I've known this woman socially. I had no idea she was dealing with that. She's like, this book is going to help me go get the help I need. So yeah, even the fiction, the fiction can transform people. Yeah, and that that is really amazing. I mean, I, I think to write fiction well is a gift that kind of boggles my mind. It's, it's not the way my mind uh, works. You know, maybe when I'm eighty, <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, and I think for me, like I, I was telling someone last week, I can write my nonfiction anywhere because you know I'm a trained journalist. As a trained journalist, you got to write on deadline. I can sit here right now and write a piece of nonfiction. For my fiction, my kids already, they, they talk about my writing cave. I'm like, I got to go to the writing cave. The writing cave could be downstairs in the living room. The writing cave was sometimes a hotel. Sometimes I would go to a friend's spare bedroom, but I would have to close myself off a little bit so I could live in that fictional world. Or I'm up at 5 a.m. in the morning and it's the first thing I'm doing before I open emails or anything because I just want to go into that fictional space to try to make it real. Yeah, you're entering into another world. Yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly. yeah, that's amazing. That's that's having just done a little bit of writing. It's that's really cool to imagine, and I can so relate to the kind of the critical thing of, of having a writing cave. 
Right. You know, right. you have to be in a place that allows your mind to go to the places it needs to go to. Yes. To write well. That's great. Mm -hmm. So now, how have things changed in terms of these seasons? So you kind of left left that, but you're still doing so many different things. I don't do them all at once. And that's what I used to always tell people that I never, none of these things have I done all at once. I do them in seasons or eras. And so, you know, I was getting up at 5 a.m. to write the fiction. And of course I was raising my family. And at one point I was working full time at the paper and the newspaper. And then when I left full time, I focused on the, the writing and the speaking. Then I got back into part-time working for a nonprofit called Prevent Child Abuse Virginia. I spent seven years at Collegiate. When I was at Collegiate, the last probably four years I was there, I made an intentional decision not to write fiction because my son was entering high school. My daughter had just left to go to college. And I, you know, I, I didn't have the whole emptiness sorrow because I was so excited for her. And I said, hi, goodbye, have a good time. And then I looked at my son and I was like, but I only have four years left with him here. And so I decided not to go into that writing cave because it's really, you really have to like, you know, take yourself away to write. And I didn't want to spend four years in my writing cave and miss his basketball games and his football games because he played football for collegiate and he was a running back all Metro and oh. he was on the track team. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to be present for that. And, you know, a lot of times having been a parenting columnist, I used to tell people, I'm not the expert. I interview the experts. And what I learned in being a parenting columnist and seeing even with my own children is the high school years, they need you just as much as when they're two and three. And so, you know, I might be in the house with my son and he might be up in his room listening to music or playing video games, or hopefully doing homework, might not even say anything to me all day except coming by down to say goodnight, mom. But that presence was important. And so I purposely didn't write fiction those four years just because I was busy working that full time job. And then also wanting to be present for him otherwise. And then in 2020, my daughter graduated from college. My son graduated from high school during the pandemic. I started a new career working for a, a federal agency. And so I do work for them full time doing strategic communications and marketing. And I started right in the middle of the pandemic, like literally 10 days before the pandemic. So that took a lot of time and I was focused there. But also my other, I guess, passion around that time came came to inspire people and give them hope. So, you know, I was publishing blog posts and inspirational quotes and just sharing other people's videos and even talking about this was the George Floyd era too. So a lot of my friends who were not people of color were kind of reaching out, asking questions. What should I be reading? How should I be handling this? So there were a lot of tough conversations that happened. And I was also leaning into it as a writer and as a mom, I was expressing myself as a mom, like, Ahmaud Arbery, this runner in the South, you know, he's running through the neighborhood. My son's a track. He runs track for a school in Pennsylvania. And oh my gosh, like that broke my heart. And I'm like, be safe, son. Like, don't run the neighborhoods. Like as a mom, I shouldn't have to say those things. Right. So I was writing about those things and leaning into that and just trying to encourage other people through the pandemic. Um, so I didn't really write the fiction. And so now I'm kind of in a space where I'm been working slowly on the novel over, over the past three or four years. And the pivot came to me in the middle of all that. So I wrote a poem, but I'm still focused on the fiction. So got a lot to talk about, but tell me about the pivot. It's poetry. It's poetry. It goes all the way back to five years old when you wrote poetry. Right. You know, when I was five, you write rhyming poetry when you're five. Like the little police officer poem, it was rhyming. Yeah. It's a little cutesy stuff. So I really am not, a, I don't think of myself as a good poet. I actually stopped writing poetry because I was so bad at it. 
I was like, all right, I'll write the novels. I can do the nonfiction. This poetry thing isn't for me. But I remember one morning, December 2021, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic a little bit. And I was up at 5 a.m. I had opened my file to write a chapter in my novel. For some reason, this poem poured out of me. The title came to me and everything. I, I probably wrote it over an hour and it's called The Pivot. And it is about a woman dancing through life. And it talks about the plague and people being lost and the pandemic. But it's really about a personal plague. And, you know, I had suffered some losses and uh, not due to the pandemic per se, but just some personal losses and relationships and friendships and things of that nature during 2020 and 2021. So I think I thought it was part of that too. And so I was like, this is kind of powerful. And I read it to a few people and like the friends I read it to, like they would weep. I read it to a, a few male friends and family members and they were like, wow, that's powerful. So I knew it was something special, but I didn't know what to do with it because I'm not a poet. So I was like, all right, I wrote this poem. Well, I entered 2021, 22 rather, and in mid-January 2022, I started having headaches, like daily headaches. And long story short, I was dealing with migraines from January. I still actually have them once a week now, but from January to May, I had a migraine every day. And we found out through all the testing and everything that I happened to have a pituitary tumor, which happens to be a brain tumor. I say it in that way because as the doctors have said, if you got to have one, that's the kind to have. Because thankfully, it's not, you know, deadly or anything. The worst case scenario, you would lose your vision if they didn't catch it. But the other beauty is that it's so slow growing that they would catch it if you need, if something needed to happen. So long story short, what we finally determined after all that time was, was that the headaches were probably triggered by something else. And we happened to discover the tumor because the tumor is not doing anything. It's just sitting there being non-functioning, not bothering anything. I didn't know that from January to May. So that threw me into a season of deep faith, deep rest, you know, just trying to figure out what was going on. I had already agreed to host an inspirational brunch at Lewis Ginter in October of 2022. So January to May, I didn't really think a lot about it. But once we kind of got my migraine medicine straight and I could kind of like, all right, I can kind of see my way through this, sit up in June. And I'm like, I think I'm still going to host this brunch in October. And coincidentally, although I don't believe in coincidence. <laughs> October happens to be pituitary awareness month. So I was like, God, you have a sense of humor. So, <laughs> <laughs> and the way the brunch was designed, I had these four women who were going to get on stage and give Ted talk kinds of brief personal stories about things they had been through. I had a woman who had adopted 20 children, she and her husband, and nine of them happened to be African-American. But she was going to talk about what was it like to parent her black children in the George Floyd era. I had a woman who had started um, a lip gloss line, like a beauty company per se, but she talked about it originating out of her low self-esteem as an obese youth and how this lip gloss helped her feel a little bit of magic in her life. And she wanted to bring that to other little girls. So I'm asking these young people or these young women and of my age as well to get up and be vulnerable. It's like, I got to get up and share my story. So as I thought about, all right, I guess I'm going to have to talk about, you know, this health journey, the migraines, the pituitary tumor, which I did not want to do because I'm a journalist. I don't talk about myself. But I was going to do that. And then the poem came back to me and I was writing my speech and I'm like, oh, this poem is for this season. And so I recited the pivot at the end of my speech. And what I shared with the, the folks in the room that day, it was October 22nd, so almost a year ago, was that year it was my holy pause because I was not mm. as busy as normal because I had migraines, so I couldn't work on my book and I couldn't really read because you don't read when you have a headache. I was able to kind of make it through my work day and I came home and I spent a lot of time resting 
I was listening to podcasts, maybe sermons on YouTube, watching a little TV, but a lot of quiet time, a lot of prayer time. I, I created a, a, a playlist, an iTunes playlist of songs, really the day that I got the diagnosis. And if I called it Overcomer. And I literally have like a hundred songs of just encouraging songs. So when I would have those moments where I had doubt or frustration or whatever, I put that playlist on and I listened to those songs empowering me. And then I remembered the poem, The Pivot. And I was like, I have to recite this at the brunch because it's about a woman dancing through whatever her plague is. And she finds her strength and she sees herself in the mirror. And day after day, she's looking at herself in the mirror and she's saying, I see you. I will honor you. You will dance through this. This is your pivot. I wrote that poem before I went through 2022. It gave Mm. me chills. So it's all so much bigger than me. So as I recited that poem at the end of that brunch, you know, last year, there were women coming up to me in tears and they were like, oh my gosh, I need this. Can I get this? So it's taken me a whole year because again, I rest and work. I don't overdo it to have to birth it. And that's how it came about. And so I'm excited about it. I have a local artist that I work with, Don Edge Campbell. We've worked together on a couple of projects. I gave her my vision. And when she read the poem, I still haven't really asked her what she was going through, but she read the poem and it brought her to tears and it gave her a vision for what the cover should be. So for me, I just feel like I'm honored to have been the vessel for what I feel like is a poem for this season, for this era to just help women understand that we do pivot through life and we do dance and you know, this cover art, the cover art shows a woman holding shoes. They're not ballerina slippers. Mm-hmm. They're, they're heels because, yeah. you know, we women will tiptoe through our high heels. We'll act like it's all okay. But sometimes we're pivoting in the middle of things. And so it's like a gift to anyone who needs it, male or female, but specifically to women. Right. But it's a, it's a gift that comes out of a lot of life lived. Yeah, true. Very true. Very Which true. I think those are the best gifts. Yes. And like the last stanza or verse says, she is me. She is we. So she is me. She is you. She is we who are overcoming. So I do acknowledge that I am speaking to myself, but it's it's bigger than myself as well. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. And it just, it, I just love the sense of uh, journey that you're describing with your life. It's like, we are long for those, this ride of life that we live. And we play an important part. We are people who make decisions and make choices. And yet there's something going on so much bigger mm-hmm. than any choices that we make. And so we just get to join in the adventure. Exactly. Uh-huh. And choose to choose how yeah. we're going to live it. And so like that night of my diagnosis, it was uh, January 30th, 2022. I won't forget that day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have the initial shock, you have the tears, you have all those things. And, you know, this is why it's also so important to have like a, a tribe of people around you who are encouragers right. and people of faith. And I remember one of my dear friends from college, I went to Jackson State University in Mississippi that I grew up in Arkansas. And she's like 10 years older than me. So she's really like another big sister to me. And I called her to tell her. And the first words out of her mouth were, well, Stacy, well, we're getting ready to fight. I don't know what this all means, but we're getting ready to fight. And I I held the phone Mm. and I was like, she's right. We're getting ready to fight. And when I got off the phone with her, that's when I created the playlist and called it Overcomer. And I, of course, had my spiritual leaders walking the path with me. And I remember saying to one of my pastors, like, I'm not afraid. 
because God's brought me through so much. Like, I literally am not afraid. I know if he brought this, he brought it for a reason, but I am stressed. It was a very stressful season sure. for me. It was overwhelming. I wound up with like three neurologists, two neurosurgeons, <laughs> and all these other doctors in between figuring out what we needed to figure out. So it was a stressful time, but I wasn't afraid. And that sounds odd in a way, but because God has brought me through so many other things, right. I knew that he had me. And for whatever reason, I just needed to like stay the course and rest my way through. I did a whole lot of resting and praying. And what I was going to say earlier, I kind of got zigzagged there, was what I shared on the stage was what I learned during that season is that, yes, I'm a writer. Like part of my identity has always been this little five-year-old girl, this 11-year-old girl, this journalist. I'm a writer. That's who I am. No, I'm an encourager who happens to write. And I'm a woman who happens to be an encourager. But more than that, I really am just a child of God. And so whatever he needs to do through me or however he needs to use me in whatever season, it doesn't matter about the title. Like we just walk into the spaces being who we need to be. So when you say, how do you do it all? Like I literally am just intentional about whatever I need to do in that season. So like I was working on the novel when I started to feel better. And I said to my agent, I got to do this brunch right now because like this is what I'm called to do. And I'll get back to the book. Now, in my heart of hearts, I really wanted to be working on the novel. Like, I'm ready to have a finished novel. But I still haven't finished the novel. And I even had to surrender that this year to say, well, I want to do the pivot, but I need to finish the novel. And I finally had to surrender and say, the novel's going to be ready when he's ready for it to be ready. Right. So I don't do all those zillion things at once. But when they come to me and then I prayerfully say, oh, yeah, I could do a note card line with Daphne Maxwell Reed or... Yes, I can do this speaking engagement or I can host this brunch because someone needs it. Sometimes I'm doing it like, oh, okay, <laughs> but I'm doing it because I know that I'm led to do it. Right. And there's, I think of this word that I've talked about, you know, with Patricia on this word, and that's mm. such a powerful word because it, it, it encapsulates some of the truth of life. And, you know, you said, uh, I'm not afraid and I'm stressed. Right. That those two that seem incompatible mm -hmm. can be true at the same time. And I know because we've talked previously about how much you believe in intentionality mm -hmm. and, and at the same time, you're part of a journey that's so much bigger than you. Right. And that you have to be willing to let go because the time's not right, even though you want to do something. And so people can be spontaneous and be along for the journey and be a person of great intentionality. Right. They're not incompatible, even though they seem that way. And we have to kind of walk with some of the discordance mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that we can't figure it out. And I think too often, I think too often intentionality can just be a masked way of saying I'm trying to be in control right, all right. the time. And I'm a massive fan of intentionality, mm -hmm. but we're not in control. Right. We control right. some things. We right. influence a lot of things, but life is too big mm -hmm. for us to be truly in control. That is so, so true. And I think, you know, I think that's, Part of why I am intentional because I realized you can't be in control. Like I said, my mom passed 
away uh, when I was 34, like right after I had written the second book. And so we talked about it. I remember calling her, yay, mom, I finished it. But she didn't live to see it published. And that was, a, you know, that was a huge loss for me. And since then, I've lost a sister to a condition called sarcoidosis, which is an autoimmune disease. But before she passed, she passed away in 2015. But five years prior to that, she had a double lung transplant because of this condition. And, you know, she had been a vibrant person and traveling and living her life and just, you know, just a very vibrant person. And after that lung transplant, she was living, but she wasn't fully able to live and do and go. And I just remember thinking, well, if I live my life fully, I'm kind of living for both of us. Like, I'm never going to take for granted that I can breathe air because she was on like an oxygen machine for so long. I'm never going to take for granted that I can walk in the park. I'm never going to take for granted that I can do any of these things I do because I saw her not be able to do that. So that made me very intentional about being very focused in the present and enjoying the present and letting people know that I love them. Like, you know, making sure that she knew that. And then my brother, my oldest, well, my only brother, I should say, because as the youngest of five, I had three sisters and a brother. He passed away almost a year ago from cancer. He passed away five days Ooh. before Christmas last year. And, you know, thank you. Yeah, thank that you. is a lot of loss. It is a lot of loss. And so I feel like the loss, and then I'm divorced. So I've been divorced for 10 years. I was married for 20, been divorced for 10. You know, sometimes life Which happens. is its own huge it's its loss. It's own huge loss. Yeah. And, you know, you don't realize that, like, I literally had to grieve that because that's a mm-hmm. loss that you do need to grieve. And we co-parented, you know, thankfully that my children are close to both parents. And, you know, we moved on in that co-parenting space, but that's a loss that you grieve. So I think all of those things have just taught me to be very intentional about what does matter? Who do I want to be when I stand before God? Like, what kind of legacy do I want to leave? What kind of children do I want to raise? What do I want them to value and feel like matters? And when I leave people's presence, I always want to leave people better than I found them. So whatever Mm. that looks and feels like, whether it's through something you read that I wrote or I met you in the grocery store, my kids have had a longstanding joke. I know a good 10 or 15 years. They're like, mom, like they have a secret code. They'd be like, like, what does that mean? Like swiping their hands across my forehead. They're like, you have an invisible sign on your head that says, speak to me. Because I would be like in the grocery store and the cashier has told me her whole life story. Or like we're in the restaurant. And I mean, people are just pouring out stuff. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I'm like, and I'm like, you know, I'm sitting on the plane. This sweet young girl, like coming to Richmond to visit somebody. We were leaving Texas. And she told me how much was in her trust fund. And, and I'm like, sweetheart. I don't want you doing that with anybody else. I'm a safe space, but don't do that. And they're like, mom, speak to me. Like your sign is activated. So yeah, that's just always been my goal to leave people better than they find me. And so I'm intentional about that in every way. Which, you know, just speaking from the outside, I think part of why that's true, just in the little bit that I've known you, is you've used that word presence several times. But you give undistracted attention to whoever's in front of you. You know, you do it with your eyes and you do it with your face. And that's a rare commodity. Wow. Most of the time, people are giving very divided attention. Mm-hmm. They might be listening, but their eyes are going different places. Their face is reflecting something differently. So when you come across that rare person, that looks at you, mm-hmm. that engages you, that is present, you do want to talk to them. Wow. You know, so, you know, I mean, that's actually speaking 
too much given how little we know each other, but it's very obvious the very first time someone meets you that I met you. And, you know, I think that's a a powerful thing. So anyway, I, I love that. So now you can explain to your kids why. (laughs) I'm going to call them tonight, but yeah. So yeah. yeah. So I think that's it. So the doing like every, like I decided when, after my, I guess my third book had come out and I was traveling in the mid Atlantic region and they were still like elementary age. And I just remember saying, I don't want to be like this powerhouse writer, like I said, or author, and I don't know the kids. So even with that, I would take them with me on, you know, trips or I wouldn't go. And then when social media became big, did more through social media so I could be present for them. And my son gave me the greatest gift in August before he returned to college in Philadelphia for his senior year. And I posted about it, I think on my blog, but I know I posted it on my uh, social media channels a couple of weeks ago. He had gone, he left that morning and I had dashed off to work and I was like, all right, have a great day. Let me give my hug or kiss. So that night I came home downstairs, you know, puttering around cooking dinner. I go upstairs two hours later and he's got a note on my bed with a notebook that he, he had written in. And it said, I found this essay that I wrote sophomore year. I just found it, you know, when I was decluttering my closet and it's about you and you are my superhero. And what the essay was about superheroes. So he had written something for an English class about like the characteristic of superheroes is that they always go off. Like Spider-Man will go hide out and put his cape on and any superhero you think of, they like, they go away and then they come back transformed. So he said, well, my mom's her superhero power was to like go into her writing cave, wherever that was going to be. And I never minded it. Like I wanted to support her through that because I knew she was doing something important. And I was so proud of her when she came back. So like, you know, kind of get choked up now, like telling you about it. So that just shows me that my intention paid off. Like, and it's still paying off. I'm still very present for them. But yeah, it's just like, you know, seeing people and honoring them and knowing you can't really do everything at once. And when I was in that season, I would say, kids, mom's got to go to the writing cave. We're on team mommy. You get to have pizza tonight. I'm not cooking tonight. But then when I finished the book, I'd be like, y'all, let's celebrate. What do we want to do? How do y'all want to celebrate? Because y'all helped me do it. I brought them into it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that was intentional as well. So Well, and we talked just for a few minutes before we got started about how, how that word dance yes. describes it. And because it's not a formula. You, right. you can't sit here and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm making this decision at this point. This is my priority and other things aren't my priority. Right. And then I will move to this. And it doesn't work that no. way. You're having to constantly maneuver and dance. Hopefully dance has that positive yes. tune, tone to it. So it's, you know, it's just a journey. It's, you know, it is. It is, and, and we don't always get it right. You know, we have hiccups, you know, have, nobody's perfect. And so you have blind spots. And so that's when you lean into your people and say, hey, because I would always check in with my kids. What's my grade? A, B, yeah. better not be a C. But like, if yeah. it is, tell me. Yeah. You know, you just have those intentional conversations with the people on the journey. And you do work in rest. So I yeah. prioritize naps. Yeah. I prioritize, like I would always, Sunday would always be my day to do nothing. And now sometimes it's a whole weekend now, you know, that they're older and I have an empty nest. So I think what I learned too, especially last year, was that rest, when you take that rest and you allow yourself to be filled, even though you feel like you got a shorter window or timeline to get stuff done, you're pouring out more because you're right. coming from a fuller place. Yeah, my, my rest was called a year of jubilee. Ah, That's what it was. Wow. And there was a whole story kind of behind, you know, what led to that, mm-hmm. uh, that really kind of began and, and turned uh, 
the day my dad died. Oh, wow. Um, so, but there was a lot of journey to, to get to the point where the, the person who wrote Space to Breathe Again needed some space to breathe again and had to take his own year of, of Jubilee I'm because things got moving too fast. But, you know, the intentionality is so key because you don't want to get on the other side and realize that you missed the important things. And so you somehow in the midst of a lot of busyness and needing to raise and support a family still kind of had the wisdom and intentionality to say, no, this can wait. Mm-hmm. You know, this is more important now and to pivot, you know, during yeah. that. I think the loss taught me that because a friend asked me recently about the novel that I've been working on off and on for since 2020. She's like, what is taking so long? You wrote the first 10 books in 10 years. And I paused and I was like, I think it was the grief. I think mm-hmm. grief made me want to live more fully, which sounds odd. No, it doesn't to me at all. <laughs> no, you totally get it. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, you do get it. So it really made me. It made me appreciate each day. It made me really want to be more present, but also to honor those on whose shoulders I stand. My mom, you know, when I was a little girl, like I said, everybody knew I loved to read and write. And if I went to the store and I asked, we went to the store and I asked for a toy, I might get the toy sometimes. I might not. If I asked for a book or I asked for a pen and a pad, no question asked. You know, she got me a typewriter, all those things. Mm. So... Yeah, I just feel like I want to honor her. I want to honor my, my sister and my brother and, you know, just those people who have supported you. So I think the grief has made me much more sensitive to being as present and joyful as I can because, you know, you don't get some moments back. Yeah, it's another one of those ands, grief yes. and joy yes. and yes. how they, they magnify one another right. you know, in a sense. So I love your blog and I would really encourage everybody to, sign up for it, Life Untapped. And I love that. And the other thing I would say is, having read through some of the blogs, I kind of sometimes that certain people get classified as women's authors (laughs) and things because there's nothing, it's just truth. And it's something that I think is as meaningful to men as it is. And it doesn't need to just be in there. I mean, maybe women's fiction, maybe that is something, but, but I think you have, I think you have a lot to offer anyone. So the blog is great. And just some of the titles, how creating creates joy, Mm -hmm. uh, why reading matters. And the one which we've kind of touched on press through and rest through, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that rhythm of, you know, life gives us busy seasons or busy days, but we need to incorporate that rhythm of rest mm-hmm. in order to be able to press through exactly. the right way. Exactly. So, so many good things. So you have so much to offer, you know, yeah. coach to au- to authors. And, um, and I love that's kind of the bigger identity mm-hmm. for you. So... What's next? You're finishing a novel? Yes, I'm trying my best to finish this novel in God's time. I'm working on the novel, the women's fiction novel. So I hope to be finished with that. And I don't really know yet what's next. I'm in the season of listening. So uh, 2024 will be my 20th year as a published author. So, you know, I've been here. Oh, you should do something big and you should do this or that. So I know I don't want to do another brunch because that's so time consuming. I don't think I'm going to do that. I'm listening. I'm open and I'm listening and I'm surrendered to see 
what next will be. And in the meantime, I'm being very present with sharing the pivot with as many people as I can and encouraging people to lean into their own pivot. And we'll see what comes. So many years ago, right about 30 years ago, I kind of came up with the life mission statement. And kind of the core of it is a feeling that God called me to be a a teacher of life. Mm -hmm. And what I wrote underneath that was in order to be a teacher of life, I have to be a constant listener Mm -hmm. and a voracious learner. Wow. And it was that thought that, you know, I have nothing to offer unless I'm constantly listening, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what you're saying. So, so I, I love that. So we'll thank you. I mean, your story is your story is an inspiration. You're doing so many inspirational things, but your story is an inspiration. And so I want to just make sure that we leave those who are uh, listening to this podcast with the ways to connect with you, uh, the various things, you know, the pivot, a chat book. Yes. I got that now. <laughs> uh, but you have, you know, novels, you have blogs, you speak, how do people, what's the best way for people to connect with you? I think the central location will be my website, which is stacyhawkinsadams.com. And that's Stacy with no E. So stacyhawkinsadams.com. And they'll find pretty much everything there on the homepage. They'll see the pivot and some of my other books and the other tabs will take them to some of the other things. Like if they want writer coaching or if they're interested in the blog, it's on the website as well. And then my social media handle is uh, Facebook. It's just my name, Stacy Hawkins Adams. And everywhere else, you'll find me under Stacy Inspires. So, Stacy Inspires. Yeah. And you really do social media well. Thank you. That's, and, from, that's my marketing strategic communications hat. Well, you, hat. you do it well because it offers something. I mean, I'll, I'll, when your things come up, I'll actually want to okay. read them and listen to them. So anyway, it's great. I appreciate that. I, I tell the people that I coach in that just try to be your authentic self. And so for me, those inspirations, they come out of my morning meditation. So if I don't post one like this morning, I didn't get up in enough time to like post and have the meditation. But typically when I, after my morning meditations, whatever is resonating with me, I tend to share that because it also feels like, okay, I've seen this 12 places today. So that's the message that was meant to be shared today. So that's where that comes from. That's great. That's where it should come from. Right. That's so great. Well, thank you so much for being a part of this. And yeah, I'm looking forward to this kind of being the start of staying connected Thank together you. and who knows where God will bring it all. Amen. Thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to staying connected. This has been a blessing. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, everyone. We will have all of this information in the show notes on how to connect and, you know, follow Stacy, follow the journey. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, everyone.